Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I've always been something of a nut when it comes to the space program. But even though I've read all the books and seen all the documentaries and watched all the movies, I was still surprised to learn something new with the movie Hidden Figures. This was a 2016 film based on a book of the same name and it told the true story about black female mathematicians who worked at NASA during the hottest period of the space race. They were computers in the original sense of the world, people who computed things, complex things like flight trajectories and re-entry methods and landing coordinates. They were even assigned to check and correct the calculations spit out by NASA's big IBM mainframes, so their work was essential to the American space effort. But this being the 60s, these women were segregated away from the other scientists, meaning that their work was largely forgotten until the book and the movie came out. This got me thinking, are there any forgotten figures in music? I'm talking about women who did awesome and important things, but have largely been ignored by the traditional history of rock. You know, I'm talking people beyond Deborah Harry, Janis Joplin, Dee Nicks, Chrissy Hine, and Courtney Love. Well, yeah, turns out there was. And we do need to know about these women. Let's do that now. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this episode is all about hidden figures of rock. Women who were important to the development of our music, who should receive more recognition. They did some amazing things, but were never really given the proper credit and acclaim that they deserved. Or maybe if they did get some attention, it was completely inadequate compared to their contributions. You may have heard of some of these names, or maybe not. And we're going to be jumping through a lot of different genres before we settle into the alt-rock area. And we're going to start on August 10th, 1920, when an African-American woman from Cincinnati named Mamie Smith went to a recording studio in New York. She recorded a song called Crazy Blues, which took on the mistreatment of black people. It sounds like she was singing about domestic violence, but if you substitute my man for the white man or white people, the song takes on its intended hidden meaning. That song immediately caught fire, selling 75,000 copies in its first month and more than two million overall. It was also one of the first songs to establish the blues as a popular art form, at least as 
in a recorded sense. And by doing that, it created many of the foundations of blues records that were to come, not to mention R&B, and by extension, rock music some 30 plus years later. Another thing too, Mamie Smith was one of the first of a long line of black female singers who went beyond the bounds of what female singers were supposed to do and supposed to sound like. Other women soon stepped up and together, they sold millions of blues records throughout the 1920s and 30s. Again, very important to the evolution of R&B and therefore the rock that was to come. Then we have Memphis Minnie. Her real name was Lizzie Douglas. She was born in Louisiana in 1897. At 13, she ran away from home to play guitar in the street corners of Memphis. And when that didn't bring in enough, she may have worked as a prostitute. She was tough. If things got heavy, she wasn't afraid to fight, whether she needed to pull a knife or a pistol. In 1929, she was discovered by someone from Columbia Records while playing outside a barber shop. This led to a trip to New York, where she and her second husband, a guy named Joe McCoy, recorded some blues songs. Here's an example. This is called Me and My Chauffeur Blues. By 1935, Memphis Minnie was an established artist, one of the very few female blues guitarists. Over the decades, she would record many more songs, but declining health in the 1950s forced her to retire. A series of strokes destroyed her ability to play guitar, and she died in a nursing home in 1973. But then in 1996, Bonnie Raitt paid for a headstone, and the back of it reads, The hundreds of sides Minnie recorded are the perfect material to teach us about the blues. For the blues are at once general and particular, speaking for millions, but in a highly singular individual voice. Listening to many songs, we hear her fantasies, her dreams, her desires, but we will hear them as if they were our own. You may have heard the name Sister Rosetta Tharp. She became monstrously successful as a gospel singer in the 30s and 40s. She also veered into soul and R&B. And her influence was so intense and so profound on people like Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Elvis, and Jerry Lee Lewis that she has been called the godmother of rock and roll. There's more, too. She was one of the very first people to use distortion on the electric guitar. This had an effect on guys like Eric Clapton and Keith Richards. So no wonder she's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Here's an example of what she could do. This is from 1944 and is called Down by the Riverside. Note the swing in her performance. This song is considered to be proto-rock and roll, again, from 1944. Sister Rosetta Tharp from 1944, and a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Blues Hall of Fame, and a woman who had her own U.S. postage stamp. Sister Rosetta was followed by more female rock and roll pioneers. There was Wanda Jackson, otherwise known as the female Elvis Presley. Jack White is a big fan of her. There's Laura Lee Perkins, who was sometimes billed as the female Jerry Lee Lewis. And Ruth Brown, a former jazz singer who moved into R&B in the 1950s and became known as the woman who helped make Atlantic Records into a monster. And there was Big Mama Thornton, who had a major effect on Elvis. How about Sadie Dupuis? She borrowed $85 to found the first record label owned and operated by an African-American woman. It was called the Northern Recording Company and was based out of Detroit. And that's just a short list of women who were part of the first wave of rock in the 1950s. Now let's talk about Daphne Oram. 
If you have any interest at all in any kind of electronic music, you need to know about her. In 1942, she became a junior studio engineer at the BBC. Her first job was to make sure that music broadcasts continued should things be interrupted by Nazi bombing runs. If this happened, she was supposed to seamlessly switch over to recorded music. Again, it was a morale booster and a way to you know mess with the Nazis. This led to her experimenting with audio recording gear. After the war, she got deep into the idea of composing with synthetic sounds and then esoteric audio equipment like, well, they weren't synthesizers. They hadn't been invented yet. So she used things like sine wave oscillators combined with magnetic tape recorders. Her studio must have looked like something out of a science fiction movie. In 1957, she created the soundtrack for a play called Amphitryon 38, which was the first ever all-electronic score for anything. Have a listen. Once she convinced the BBC to establish an electronic workshop, they call it the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, more experimentation followed. And then when she left the Beeb in 1959, she founded her own studio devoted to creating new sounds. For example, the electronic sounds you hear in three James Bond movies, Dr. No from Russia with Love and Goldfinger, were all created by Daffody Orem. Here is one of her other creations. It's called Pulse Persephone from 1959, which showed how tape could be used to manipulate sound. Any discussion of Daphne Oram and her work at the BBC has to lead to Delia Derbyshire. Once Daphne got the BBC Radiophonic Workshop up and running, a succession of people went through the place, including Delia, who got a job there in 1962. She stayed for 11 years, working on electronic music for close to 200 radio and TV programs using tape machines and oscillators and sine wave generators, basically whatever she could get her hands on. This is very important stuff in the history of electronic music, and she continued with her experimental compositions until 1975. Her most famous work involved taking the theme from the BBC show Doctor Who and turning it into something entirely electronic. Now, she did not write this. This was done by composer Ron Grainer, but she's the one that gave it the familiar electronic arrangement. This is what viewers heard from 1963 through to 1980. That's Delia Derbyshire's famous reinterpretation of the Doctor Who theme, one of the most famous bits of sci-fi music in the universe. Later, in 1988, the KLF, those wacky UK musical provocateurs, took that theme and turned it into an acid house anthem under the name The Time Lords. The KLF, working as the Time Lords in 1988 and Doctor in the TARDIS, which takes Delia Derbyshire's version of the Doctor Who theme and melds it with Gary Glitter's Rock and Roll Part 2. Now, there are some problems with that recording. First of all, Gary Glitter is a disgraced and convicted pedophile, and no one wants to see him make any record royalties ever again. And second, the KLF were never really keen on clearing samples. After all, KLF stands for Copyright Liberation Front. So, uh... No wonder you can't find that song on iTunes. 
In a moment, we'll look at some hidden figures from the 1960s, women that should be remembered for their rock and roll work, but really haven't been. A modest attempt to fix that is coming up. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I call this episode Hidden Figures because it's a look back on the history of rock that acknowledges female music pioneers that really haven't received the kind of attention that they should have. Take Carol Kay, for example. She is one of the most heard bass players in the history of music. A modest guess is that she appears on 10,000 different recordings. 10,000. Now, Carol was an in-demand session player. She started working in studios in 1957, switching from guitar to bass in 1963. And listen, no woman played bass in 63. It, It just wasn't a lady's instrument. But she didn't care. If there were gigs to be had as a session bass player, well, fine. Within a few years, she was part of a group of studio musicians known as the Wrecking Crew, some really top-notch players who were called in when only the best would do. They could play in any style, at any time of the day or night. That's Carol we hear on La Bamba by Richie Valens. Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys, that's Carol. The original Batman theme, Carol. The Righteous Brothers and You've Lost That Love and Feeling, Carol. Glenn Campbell, Neil Young, Frank Zappa, Ray Charles, Tina Turner. The list is nearly endless. She even played with Frank Black of the Pixies on a 2006 record called Fast Man Raider. And here she is in 1999 playing with Matthew Sweet on a song called Faith in You on his album In Reverse. Matthew Sweet and Faith in You, featuring Wrecking Crew bass player Carol Kay, one of the most important and most heard bass players in the history of rock, thanks to her enormous body of studio work that began in 1957. Today, all female rock bands are fairly common, but in the 1960s, no one had ever heard of such a thing. Because, you know, everybody knew that chicks couldn't rock. Oh, they could sing, they could dance a little, maybe shake a tambourine. But for a bunch of women to get together without the help of any dudes and just rock out, that's just rubbish. Now, it sounds really crazy to say all that today, but 50 years ago, this was common wisdom. I mean, it just wasn't done, which is why we have to give props to a couple of major pioneers. First of all, Ace of Cups, five women, no guys. They were formed in San Francisco in 1967, right in time for the Summer of Love. Jimi Hendrix saw what they were doing and invited them to open one of his gigs at Golden Gate Park. They were also friends with the Grateful Dead and the Jefferson Airplane and the guys in the band. They did get a record deal, despite the rampant sexism of the era, although they were lowballed on the value of these contracts because, well, I mean, they were only women. Another issue happened when one of the band members suffered a fractured skull when she was hit by a full beer can during the awful Altamont Festival in December 1969. That required brain surgery. The Ace of Cups never did make any professional recordings. Record deals didn't really come through. And when a couple of members became parents, that was pretty much it. They were replaced by a couple of dudes, and then the band broke up in 1972. Too bad, too, because 
they were poised to do something pretty cool and pretty groundbreaking. They could have been the first ever all-female rock band to release a record. It wasn't until 2003 that a CD of demos and live tracks was released. Let's have a listen to something. This was recorded sometime in the late 60s, never got released properly back then, and it doesn't sound all that different from some modern indie rock. This is Indie Cups with Boys, What'll You Do Then? Pretty solid for a song that's over 50 years old, way ahead of its time. Ace of Cups and Boys, What'll You Do Then? On the same lines of them was an LA band called Fanny, four women, including two from the Philippines, who came together in 1969. And you could make a case that this was the first all-female band to enjoy both critical and commercial success. Before they broke up in 1975, David Bowie, John and George from the Beatles, Sly Stone, and a ton of other big names became huge fans. They released five major label albums, and they wrote all their own songs, which is something almost no female artist did back in those days. They toured with big acts like Jethro Tull and Humble Pie, and they influenced a generation of wannabe female rockers. So how come they aren't better known today? It's really strange. There's probably two reasons for this. First of all, they were ahead of their time. The mainstream rock community just wasn't ready for this kind of innovation. And second, it was the usual sexism. The, hey, you're pretty good for a girl thing. When they played live, they insisted on dressing in regular street clothes. But they were always being asked to sex it up for the sake of their image. Even their original record deal came about only because they were signed as a novelty act. Meanwhile, they were good players, good enough to work as studio musicians. In 1971, no one less than Barbara Streisand hired them to appear on one of her albums. Their most successful hit was from 1974, an album called Rock and Roll Survivors. On it was their most successful single, which was called Butter Boy. This track was written about David Bowie, who sent them a very nice fan letter and talked about how great Fanny was whenever he was interviewed. Let's take a listen. Again, this is from 74, but it still sounds pretty contemporary. A 1974 recording called Butter Boy from Fanny. Great all-female band, but one that has somehow slipped away from the standard history of rock, which is just wrong. There are two dotted lines to follow from Fanny. The first is to a weirdo producer named Kim Fowley, who was inspired by the group to form The Runaways, arguably the first all-female hard rock band. They featured Joan Jett and Lita Ford, who, of course, we still talk about today. Again, The Runaways were good but they were subject to tremendous sexism. Legend has it that Fowley had their crew throw stuff at them during rehearsals so they'd get used to the abuse whenever they played live. During the four years they were together between 1975 and 1979, they really never had much of a career in North America. But in Japan? It's another story. They were quite the sensation. In 1977, they even made a live album over there. The Runaways, with probably their best-known song, Cherry Bomb, recorded live on a tour of Japan in 1977. Today, we look back at the Runaways as insanely important figures, especially to the generation of women that followed, including those in the LA punk scene. There might have never been a band like the Go-Go's, who started as a punk band, 
had it not been for the Runaways. Okay, back to Fanny for a second. There was a lineup change in 1974, which brought in a woman named Patty Quattro. She had a sister named Susie, and Susie became a big deal in the UK, Europe, and Australia, but never in North America, where she still isn't that well-known, which is crazy since she sold over 50 million albums. (laughs) Yeah, 50 million. Wait a sec. Uh, Maybe you're a fan of the old show Happy Days. Remember Fonzie's girlfriend, Leather Tuscadero? Yeah, that was Susie Quattro. Here's one of her hits that scored during the glam era in the UK. This is from 1973, and it's called 48 Crash. Susie Quattro and 48 Crash from 1973. Not a hidden figure in much of the world, but here in North America, never the star she was elsewhere. Again, 50 million albums. When we come back, we'll move over to the UK for two acts that need to be acknowledged for their work and for their art. One of the most important things to happen in women in music was punk. In the beginning, punk rock was all about having the guts to say something. That's what got you respect and attention. Gender, age, musical ability, didn't matter. It was all in wanting to express yourself and having the courage to do it. This is where we meet the Slits, four teenage women who decided to form a band after seeing each other again and again and again at early punk shows around London. They decided to form their own band. Okay, they they didn't know how to play many of their instruments, but that didn't matter. Again, the act of expression was the entire point. By 1977, they were supporting a new band called The Clash on a UK tour. They played with the Buzzcocks. They hung out with the Sex Pistols. They even made it onto the BBC. And the more they played, the better they got. The grooves got deeper and the rhythms more funky. And in 1979, they released a record called Cut on Island Records, which became an important touchstone for many people during that first wave of British punk. And although they wrote most of their own material, their biggest song was this Marvin Gaye cover. The Slits from 1979. I never heard what Marvin Gaye thought of that version. One more name from this era before we go, and that's Polly Styrene. Her real name was Marion Joan Elliott Said. She was from South London and also got sucked into the 1970s punk scene after seeing the Sex Pistols in the summer of 1976. After trying a solo career, she pulled together a band called X-Ray Specs and adopted a fake plastic name, her words, and that was Polly Styrene. And part of her thing was to disabuse everyone of what the typical female singer should look like. First of all, she was of mixed race. Mom was Irish, dad was from Somalia. Second, she was completely comfortable with her body type and weight. She wore wild day-glow clothing. She had big braces on her teeth, so not conventional at all. And when she was in X-Ray Specs, she sang songs like this. There's Polystyrene from 1978 singing for X-Ray Specs with Oh Bondage, Up Yours. Certainly not typical, right? And that's why she was such an inspiration to so many who came out to see her play back in the day. And while neither X-Ray Specs or her solo career produced a lot of hits, Polly earned a lot of respect from some big names. U2 was on record as being a major fan. Unfortunately, things turned rough for her. She was diagnosed as bipolar in 1991 and then found out she had breast cancer. That killed her at the age of 53 in 2011. 
If there's good news about these hidden figures is that technology has allowed everyone to discover what they did and to investigate them further. These women made extraordinarily important contributions to modern music and should be recognized at every opportunity. And I hope I was able to pique your interest so that you'll be able to learn even more about these very important people. It's just too bad that most of them never got the credit they deserved while they were around. Podcast editions of this program are available through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and every other podcast platform in this arm of the galaxy. Please give them a listen if you get a chance. There are hundreds to choose from. If you're looking for a daily fix of music news and information, there's my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every single day and comes with a free newsletter, so you never miss a thing. We can also meet up on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and I'm always here for your emails through alan at alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.